Let's take the Word of God and open it to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Earlier this morning I read to you from Hebrews chapter 6. And we saw there why God does some of the things He does. It's to give us a greater assurance for our faith. That we might have greater and stronger hope. And the reason we have Romans chapter 8 is because God wanted to give us a very beautiful and eloquent 12 verses that describe His promises and guarantees of His care for us in this life and His certain provision for us in the next and how we can never be separated from the love of Christ or the love of God that is in Christ by anything our enemies might throw at us. And we want to rejoice in glory in these words. If your heart is prepared, and if you have prayed, and if you participate in the way that God expects you to, then you can profit from such an assembly. If you have not prepared, nor prayed, nor participate, you'll not profit, and you will pay for it. By the God of heaven, it is our duty to come before words like this and humble ourselves, because it's the man that trembles at the word of God, that God will approach unto, and he will not come nigh unto any other. He is not interested in those who use the Bible as a collection of sound bites, nor who just go through the motions of religion. He is interested in those that truly, dearly, passionately love him, and want to understand the words that are before us, and want to delight in them and feed their souls on them. And let's do that at this time. The Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was made a holy orator in these 12 verses. We have seven rhetorical questions. The language is lofty. It's beautiful. It's simple to understand. And it lays before us wonderful promises that the God of heaven did not have to give us. But he chose to give them to us to encourage our faith and give us a bedrock foundation for the times to come. It is a pity in some respects that we don't face afflictions like these that are described here. But may the Lord bless us by His Spirit anyway to lay hold of these verses. These are no sound bites. These words have great sense attached to them. And so we want to consider them today. Let me read to you again verses 28 through 39 and we'll take up with verse 32. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. To them who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren." Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? 
Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. And amen. Thank you, Lord, for giving us 12 wonderful verses. If you will pray, prepare, and participate by focusing and girding up the loins of your mind, this is precious manna for your souls. This will build your heart up, and it should convict you to live your life for Him who gave His Son for you. May the Lord bless us. Let's go to verse 32. He that spared not His own Son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Impossible. It's a question. It's a rhetorical question. Rhetorical questions are very powerful uses of language. The apostle isn't ignorant and looking for an answer. He knows the answer and he knows you know the answer. And the answer is, God will give us all things. Because if He's given us the most expensive gift, all of the lesser gifts, He'll obviously throw in as well. Right. Romans 8.32 To confirm what He had just written, if God be for us, who can be against us? He explains how much God is for them. How much is God for us? How much was God for the Roman saints? He gave His own Son and delivered his own son up for the Roman saints and for us. The great proof of God's love for his own is the gift of his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son To be the propitiation for our sins. That is the love under consideration and the great gift that God gave for us. There is in this first clause, he that spared not his own son. Gentle and tender and wonderful and precious words describing the affection that God had for us and the value of what he gave for us. He did not spare, but he delivered up his son to bruising and to abusing and to the using 
of profane and wicked men, Romans and Jews alike. Abraham didn't spare his own son for God. But God didn't spare his own son for enemies. Right. A huge difference. Eli spared his sons when they were wicked. The heart of a woman. David spared his sons when they were wicked. The heart of a woman. God did not spare his own son when his son was absolutely, impeccably perfect. The Lord of glory. What a difference. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up. He delivered him up to the tormentors for us. What a great gift that God has given us. We spare our sons wherever we can, by whatever means we can, because we want to help them, assist them, and keep their life from being difficult and hard. But God spared not His own Son. He delivered Him up to enemies. He stood back when enemies assaulted His Son and falsely accused His Son. And His Son laid down His life for us, and the Father did not intervene, nor did the Father comfort in that time But Jesus Christ cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because God had delivered up his own son. The sending of Jesus Christ, God's own son, is a powerful logical argument. It is arguing from the greater to the lesser. It's one of the means of arguing a point. The Bible argues from the lesser to the greater, and it argues from the greater to the lesser. The Bible argues from the lesser to the greater when it says... God takes care for sparrows. Not one can fall to the ground without your heavenly Father. Of how much more value are you than many sparrows? That's arguing from the lesser to the greater. If God takes care of sparrows and providentially oversees their lives, then surely he will ours. Jesus would say, behold the lilies of the field. If God so clothes the grass, which is here today and is gone tomorrow and put in the furnace... How much more is he going to clothe you, O ye of little faith? That's arguing from the lesser to the greater. It's powerful, isn't it? Don't we? we love those expressions. If God takes care of a single sparrow, not one, can fall to the ground, and we are of more value than many sparrows, he'll take care of us. That's a powerful argument that the Holy Spirit gives us from the lesser to the greater. Then the Bible argues from the greater to the lesser. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us, if we are going to rule and judge angels, then how much more should we be able to judge the little things of this life? 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 8. And here, the Holy Spirit is making one of those arguments. He that spared not his own son, if God did not spare his own son, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If God didn't spare His Son, He's surely going to throw in everything else. Because His Son was the most expensive gift He could give. That's the greatest gift. So arguing from the greatest gift, everything else that's smaller and more minor, in comparison, God's surely going to throw in to the care package for saints called our salvation. He that spared not His own Son, how shall He? It would be impossible. It would be to defame His Son. 
if he gave his son and didn't throw in the things that belonged to his son and the rest of the things of heaven, then he wouldn't be valuing his son very highly. How shall he not? He has to. By the nature of the gift. Because giving his own son is giving everything and the last thing that he could give. And so all the other spiritual blessings that are in that son, he will certainly give as well. How could God send his greatest gift for his sons and not also give them everything else? That's the force of Romans 8.32. It carries some wonderful implications. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Now those that believe that all means all, and that's all all means. Don't know what to do with a verse like this. Because they have one terrible thing they know. They know that there's a whole lot of men that are going to be cast into the lake of fire. And if God spared not his own son for all men, then there will not be a single one in the lake of fire. Because if God spared not his own son for them, then how shall he not with that son give them everything, every other gift and every spiritual blessing? Right. I remember at the age of 17 or 18, reading John Owens, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, and watching him reason, reading his reasoning from Romans 8.32 and realizing how full that verse was about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Amen. It's impossible. If God gave his son, everyone that God gave his son for shall certainly have everlasting life and every spiritual blessing attached. The us all here is not to be passed out in printed form on every street corner. The us, all, the us all that are in this verse are the Roman saints and the Apostle Paul. And those that read these words after that, that can align themselves with either one. The saints of God. The elect of God. Those that are foreknown of God, predestinated, called, justified, glorified. Those that are believers who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, the sons of God, those that are in the context of Romans 8. They're the ones that Romans 8.32 applies to. It's us all, the children of God. It's us all, the saints of God. It's us all, the church of Jesus Christ. If God delivered up Jesus for all men, then all men shall receive all spiritual blessing, and we are universalists. But Jesus did not die for all men, because this is certainly not the case, that universalism is true. There'll be many cast into the lake of fire for their sins, because Jesus did not die for their sins. We do not believe in double jeopardy in this country, nor do we believe in double jeopardy in the Bible. Jesus did not suffer for the sins of men, and then those men have to suffer for those sins again in the lake of fire. The Arminians profane the death of Jesus Christ. If Jesus died for all men, then the all things that are in this verse are dependent on what they do for Jesus. Because if it's just left up to God's grace, they get everything attached. They get everything heaven has to offer. 
since he gave the greatest gift of all. If Jesus died for all men, and many do not receive the all things of this verse, then God failed the Lord Jesus Christ. Then Jesus Christ is of not sufficient value to justify the rest of the blessings of heaven. If Jesus died for all men, as some would tell us, then he died for the vessels of dishonor and the vessels of wrath that Romans 9 are going to tell us about. Since Jesus died only for his elect church, then this stands clear, this verse stands clear in all of its glory. Right. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not, how shall he not give everything else? How shall he not? And he'll give it freely. Because if he gave up his son freely, he's going to give up everything else freely that's necessary for our salvation. And five of the greatest aspects of salvation have already been listed in verses 29 and 30. Foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. How shall not all those things be given to the elect if God gave them his son? If he delivered up his son to suffer death. There must have been one great exercise of the will of God in saving his elect. And everything attached to the promise and purpose of salvation will be given to those elect. What a wonderful verse. It's impossible. This verse is to give comfort. If Jesus died for all men, and most men end up in the lake of fire without the spiritual blessings of Christ, then what comfort is there in Romans 8.32? If you take the us all of Romans 8.32 and make it all men, would you tell me what the comfort is? Well, the comfort is that salvation is left up to me. Someone would say, oh, is that where you want it left up? God have mercy on my soul. I don't want my eternal life left up to me. I want my eternal life left up to God and His Son, Jesus Christ. He that spared not His own Son is going to do all these things over here for the foreknown and predestinated that end up glorified. The number that is in Romans 8.32 is no greater or less than the number that is in Romans 8.30. The one is called, He gave up His Son for us all. The other verse is, they end up glorified. Are you with me? Yeah, man. This is what we believe. Yeah. This is what the Lord has shown us. And this lifts up the Lord Jesus Christ as high as you can get him. Amen. Jesus Christ was freely given to us. And justification is freely by that gift. And every other spiritual blessing will be freely given to us as well. Jesus Christ nor spiritual blessings. They are not offered to us. You know, the world wants to talk about the offer of salvation. God doesn't offer salvation to anyone. God gives salvation to his elect. How did he do it? He gave them to Jesus. He gave Jesus for them. And Jesus gives them eternal life. It's all in John 17, verses 2 and 3. It's all in John chapter 6. It's in John chapter 10. You can read it. God gave them to Jesus Christ. God gave Jesus Christ for them. Jesus Christ gives eternal life to them. That's the doctrine of salvation as far as giving is concerned. Now, as far as offering of salvation, Hebrews 9.14. Jesus offered himself without spot to God through the eternal spirit. That's the offering of salvation. Jesus offered himself to God. Did God accept Jesus Christ? Yes, he did. And when God accepted Jesus Christ, who else got accepted? We did. Because we were made accepted. 
in the beloved Ephesians 1, 6. You want to talk about offering and accepted? Then go to the Bible and tell me about it. Go to the Bible. The gift of God's Son is not left up to you accepting or rejecting. The gift of God's Son is up to God's accepting or rejecting. And God accepted. And for those for whom He did not die shall be rejected. That's the order of God's Word. And it lifts up the Lord Jesus Christ and the grace of God to the high heaven. And it shows the great gift that God gave of His Son, that if He gave His Son, He surely will give us everything else that we need for eternal life. Did Jesus Christ die for you? If Jesus Christ died for you, then every spiritual blessing is yours. Then the five things listed in Romans 8, 29, and 30 are yours. How do you know if Jesus Christ died for you? Do you believe on Him? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Does that faith change your life? Does that faith drive you to serve Him? Do you add to your faith virtue and knowledge, patience, temperance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity? Then you know He died for you. That's how you know. You make your calling and election sure. Election's in verse 29, but there it's called foreknowledge and predestination. Election leads us to glorification. Jesus died for those that will be glorified. How do I know? How do I know if I'm God's elect? You can make your calling and election sure. By believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and adding to your faith the other seven virtuous things listed in 2 Peter chapter 1. That's how you know. If you've believed, then add to your faith those things that please God. You know, when we read a verse like this, we ought to have another question. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall we not give him all things for what he has done for us? That's how we ought to exit Romans 8.32. How shall we... Not give Him all things that we can give Him for what He has done for us. If God gave His own Son for us, how shall we not give Him everything that we have? Why is your heart so hard and selfish that you would withhold anything from the Lord of glory who gave His Son for us? Lord, help us. Help us to see the greatness of Your gift for us and the certainty that it includes everything else Heaven has to offer. Surely we can give Him the few little things we have on earth to offer. Is that reasonable to you? Paul thought it was reasonable. He said in Romans chapter 12, I beseech you therefore with the mercies of God to do your reasonable service. Because anything we give Him is very reasonable. In fact, it's totally unfair in comparison to what He's done for us. But He accepts it. He accepts it through the sanctifying work of Jesus Christ and the grace of the Holy Spirit. Verse 33, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. To confirm his words that if God be for us, who can be against us? He appealed in verse 32 that God gave his son. That means God is committed to the elect. How do you measure a person's commitment? In a business deal, it's how much have they put up. In salvation, 
What did the Lord put up on his end of the covenant of salvation? His own son. He's committed. Everything else in heaven is obviously ours. Verse 33. We, if God be for us, who can be against us? Then on what basis does justification stand? If God's for us and no one can be against us, then we better be solidly justified. And so the reasoning and the question of Romans 8.33, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Though we do sin, and we might fear charges of sin from the devil, as he throws fiery darts of doubt at our heart, and though others may accuse us of sin, it is God that justifieth. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? When we sin, the Bible tells us, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 1 John 2.2 2. And he is the propitiation for our sins. Judaizing enemies of the gospel could come from Jerusalem and tell these Roman saints, if you don't keep the law of Moses, and if you're not circumcised, your sins are still on you. It is God that justifieth. Paul's answering every complaint and every charge that could be thrown and has been thrown at Christians. Pagan Nero could charge them with capital sedition or treason against Rome. But God justifies. Pope Innocent III. I love the name. Pope Innocent III, who instituted the Spanish Inquisition. Pope Innocent III, or a tribunal of cardinals or bishops, could charge you with heresy and tell you that you are going to suffer eternal damnation outside of the Holy Mother Church. But it is God that justifies. And men did not fear her threats. And they gladly gave up their lives. They loved not their lives unto the death. Because they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. Because it's the Lamb that justifies us by God's grace. No man can charge the elect with any sin. And no man can charge the elect with any conditions to get justified. It is God that justifies. Who shall anything to the charge of God's elect? Here we have that word that means choice, chosen. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's chosen? They are the ones that are foreknown and predestinated in verse 29. God made choice and predestinated them to be his sons and that he would justify and glorify every one of them. The Bible tells us this. What is election in the Bible and to what are you elect? Elect. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1-2. The obedience that we are elected unto is the obedience of Jesus Christ, the second Adam who obeyed for us. If you can encounter a church today that will even admit that there might be such a thing as election... They say that election is conditioned upon whether we obey. If you obey, then God will elect you. But the Bible says we're elected under Christ's obedience. 
First Peter 1, 2. Thank you, Lord. You have truly raised up a second Adam for us. For by one man's obedience, many were made righteous. That's justification. God is the justifier. He's, Paul's already taught them that in chapters 3 and the first verse of chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation. To them which are in Christ Jesus. And how did we get in Christ Jesus? We were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. God's purpose and grace was given us to Him before the world began. First reference was Ephesians 1.4. Second reference was 2 Timothy 1.9. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, blessed God. Here, justification is defined for us. Nothing can be laid to your charge. Innocent and protected from all wrongdoing and charges of sin or crimes. We know that it's a little better than that. But for the point here, because these saints were often accused of sins and had sins laid to their charge, Paul freed them and said, it's God that justifies. Don't care what a pope or a Caesar, a priest or a bishop can say about you, God justifies. Verse 34. Who is he that condemneth? Are there individuals that will come along and condemn the people of God? Oh yes, they've been put on trial so many times. We are so pampered and ignorant of history that we cannot fully appreciate what our brethren have gone through. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Thank you, Lord, for Romans 8.34. Who is he that condemneth? God's sons have struggled with their own conscience. God's sons have struggled against the devil, and they've struggled against their enemies. But who is he that condemneth? Does 1 John tell us that God is greater than your heart? Amen. Does, does 1 John tell us that God is greater than your heart? That's right. Then if your heart condemns you, what does it mean? Nothing. It means nothing. Because God is greater than our heart. God's saints and God's children have struggled with their hearts, their consciences, the devil, the fiery darts of doubt. They have struggled with their enemies. They have struggled with their minds. Their minds get weak. Their minds get tired. Their minds forget the promises of God with the assistance of the devil and the weakness of their flesh. And they condemn themselves. But do you know what the answer is? It is Christ that died. You're not involved in the equation. It's Christ Jesus that died. Who is he that condemneth? Who can raise a charge against God's elect? Do you notice the logical progression of these verses? If God be for us, who can be against us? What is that based on? Foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. What's that based on? They are called according to the purpose of God. God has a purpose for every one of his elect, and that purpose will be realized. It's realized in five things in verses 29 through 30. And if God be for us, who can be against us? How committed is God to this? He gave up his own son, verse 32. What does that mean? There's no charge that can be laid, verse 33. But what if someone condemns me? It is Christ that died. They're not part of the equation. It is Christ that died. Thank you, Lord, for Romans 8, 34. 
Does your conscience ever condemn you? Do enemies condemn you? Does your mind run foolish trails and condemn you? It is Christ that died. Amen. We don't even have to stand on trial, do we? Right. We do it well enough ourselves. <laughs> Who needs the cardinals of Rome? Who is he that condemneth? The elect know how terrible they are. Do you know what Paul wrote about himself before he got into chapter 8? He said in Romans 7.24 with an exclamation point, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? But you know what? His answer there was the same as it is here. I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. So with the flesh, I just keep serving the law of sin. I I keep breaking down to the law of sin. But with the mind, the law of God. Right. We have two natures at war within us. Paul recognized that. Paul told us about it. And Paul comforts us. And he says, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ. You know, there's one wonderful thing about death. You get to leave behind something very ugly and wicked. Your body. And you spring clear and free of it. And go into heaven without that sin. And in your members going with you. If we could just learn to look at death like that, getting rid of this tabernacle, getting rid of this corruptible thing that's wrapped around my soul. Because you know what? He's going to clothe you with a new one. He's going to put a new one on you. You'll not be found naked before God. Your soul will never be naked. Second Corinthians chapter five. Paul said that. I believe it. Do you believe it? Believest thou this? Romans eight thirty four. Who is he that condemneth? The devil. The devil can no longer accuse us to God because of Romans 8.33. Romans 12.10 tells us that the accuser of the brethren was cast out of heaven. Do you think there's anyone in heaven that would listen to the devil up there bringing up charges of sins against God's elect when Jesus had died for them? He was cast out of heaven with the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he comes down to earth and he throws those fiery darts of doubt into our own hearts. And how are we to quench them? With the shield of faith. Right. What is the shield of faith? A man that believes, Romans 8, 34. Right. It's that simple. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And we're going through Romans 8 to build your faith. And you hold up the shield of faith and say, it is Christ that died. And his little voice says, how do you know you're Christ? Because I believe he is the son of God. And that he's going to cast you into eternal torment. Because I love him, and I'm looking for his appearing, something you're not doing. We should love the Lord Jesus Christ and love his appearing. That's how you know. Who is he that condemneth? The devil may accuse you. Enemies like the Jews may accuse you. Because you're not being justified by Moses' law. Enemies like the Romans might accuse you. You might be treated like the off-scouring of the world. Let all men, devils, angels, conscience, mind, or reason condemn you. It is Christ that died. And if we would focus more on Jesus Christ's death, we would have fewer doubts about our own salvation. Neither Caesar or Pope of Rome or any civil or religious leader can ever condemn us. They can speak the words. Their words are vanity and nothing. They're lies. Because it is Christ that died. 
four answers to the question in, in verse 34. There's a question that starts out verse 34, and there are four answers. Do you see all four? Oh, it's sweet. It's sweet. Who is he that condemneth? Number one, it is Christ that died. His death. Number two, he is risen again. His resurrection. Number three, who is even at the right hand of God. His ascension. Number four, what he's doing there at the right hand of God. His intercession. His death. His resurrection, His ascension, His intercession. Who is He that condemneth? The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died, lives, sits, and intercedes for me. No one can condemn me. First, no one can condemn the elect because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for them. Our Lord's death was a legal transaction for our sins. Therefore, no one can condemn them. Christ died. It is Christ that died. If anyone condemns us for our sins, he is the judge, and he died for them. And he'll never condemn us. He's the only one that could condemn us, but he never will, for he lives with God to save us. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, and he died for us. So who is he that condemneth? No one can condemn Because Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, died for me. And he said, I will lose none of them. He said, it is finished. And he'll say, behold, I am the children which thou hast given me. Second, no one can condemn the elect because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lives for them. Look at what it says. It says, yea, rather, if we can find consolation that no one can condemn us because Christ died for us, then yea, rather, here's even more consolation. He's risen again. He's not, he did not just die for us. He has risen again. Paul would write the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15 and about verse 17 that if Christ be not raised from the dead, then your faith is vain. You are yet in your sins. Because if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, then our sins must have overpowered him and there still must be some left to pay for. But yea, rather, he is risen again. He would say in Revelation chapter 1 and 18, I was dead, but I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys. Of what? Of death and hell. I have the authority over death and hell. Because I am alive. I defeated death and hell. I tore the grave open. I came out of the ground. I defeated death. I defeated the sting of death. I defeated sin. I defeated the devil. I made an open show of them. So who is he that condemneth? No one can condemn you because it's Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again. Showing his victory over sin and death. Third, who is even at the right hand of God. Yes, I love this one who was even at the right hand of God, because this is His ascension. If you want to talk about the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, then just make sure you make me happy by talking about the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He rose up out of this world's atmosphere into heaven. John saw him arrive. The lion of the tribe of Judah in Revelation chapter 5. He took the book of the everlasting covenant out of the hands of him that sat on the throne. He busted the seals off it. And the angel choir and the choir of the saints began singing, Worthy is the Lamb, because salvation had been purchased by Jesus Christ. And he was there successfully, successful over sin and death. And he was seated at God's right hand. He could sit down because Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 tells us he had by himself purged our sins. And therefore he could sit down. He is successful. He was promoted. He was crowned. He was coronated. He was glorified. He was lifted up. He was put over all angels, principalities, and powers, though being a man. Who is even... What does the word even mean? Two things that are level? Let's get a little... What does even mean? Who is even at the right hand of God? Why does it say that? Why does it have the word even in there? Because this is an extreme thing. Who is even at the right hand of God? That is a fantastic place to be. It is the most lofty position in heaven. Throughout the Old Testament, when you sat someone at your right hand... You are giving them a position of power, a position of authority, a position of glory. And God's given that to the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is even at the right hand of God. What is he doing there at the right hand of God? He is Lord of the universe and there is no devil, angel, or man that can speak against the elect of God. The brethren of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a conquering prince that has sat down and he has been promoted above everything there is. Every throne, every might, every dominion, every name that is named in this world and in the world to come. Who is even at the right hand of God. Now who is he that condemneth? Some pope? Some bishop? Sitting on his gold-crusted chair? Jesus is at the right hand of God. And those saints that would give their lives whether it's in the Colosseum being torn apart by lions or gladiators, or whether it was being burned at the stake, they could look into heaven with the eyes of faith, and like Stephen saw in reality, they saw by faith the Lord Jesus Christ at the right hand of God. What glory! Who is he that condemneth? Look who you've got on your side. The Lord Jesus Christ. He died for you. He rose again to defeat death for you. And he is seated at God's right hand. And what's he doing there? Romans 8.34 Who also maketh... Let's just throw in something else. Who also maketh intercession for us. He's there pleading our case. Arguing the merits of his death. Reminding God of what he has done for us. A perpetual memorial of a living high priest that will never die. Who is he that condemneth? No one can condemn the elect. Christ died, Christ rose again, he is seated at God's right hand, and he pleads our case. Our case is settled. No one can condemn. For those of you that ever touched a new Schofield reference Bible, we trust that God will forgive you like he's forgiven me. Romans 8.34, Romans 8.34 The whole verse is a question. Who is he that condemneth? Shall Christ? Can you believe that? And they call themselves a King James Bible.
Go look it up. Romans 8.34. We reject any Bible translation that turns all of verse 34 into a question. There's a question to get the verse started, and the Apostle Paul gives an answer, and it's a four-part answer. It's not a four-part question. Let's go to Romans 8.35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I hope you're following from verse 28. Called according to his purpose. Verse 28. Foreknown, predestinated, called, justified, and glorified. Verses 29 and 30. If God be for us, who can be against us? 31. How committed is the Lord? He gave his son. Verse 32. How clear are the elect? Who can lay anything to their charge? God justified them. Can anyone condemn them? Christ died, lives, sits, and intercedes for them. They are safe. But what if he stops loving me? No one else loves me in this world. I've been stripped of my clothes. I've lost all my relations. My family's turned against me. And now they're going to burn me at the stake. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Or distress? Or persecution? Or famine? Or nakedness? Or peril? Or sword? Can those things separate us from the love of Christ? Not a chance. Let me cheat and go ahead. No way. Let me give you verse 37. No way. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. We live in a part of the Carolinas that is called the Piedmont. Do you know why it's called the Piedmont? The word Piedmont means land that is at the foot of the mountains. There is a place in northern Italy that borders on Switzerland, France. It is surrounded by the Alps on three sides. It's much larger than our Piedmont. It is called the Piedmont of Italy. There, under the shadow of the city of Rome, for 1,500 years, Christians lived and died. Fox's Book of Martyr tells us about them by name. I give you a few that understood Romans 8 better than you or me. Jacob Michelino, chief elder of the church of Bobbio, and several other Protestants were hung up by means of hooks fixed in their bellies and left to expire in the most excruciating tortures. Giovanni Rastagnal, a venerable Protestant upwards of four score years of age, had his nose and ears cut off and slices cut from the fleshy parts of his body until he bled to death. Seven persons, Daniel Salagio and his wife, Giovanni Durant, Lodwich Durant, Bartholomew Durant, Daniel Ravel, and Paul Reynaud had their mouths stuffed with gunpowder, which being set fire to, their heads were blown to pieces. Daniel Cardone of Rocapiata, being apprehended by some soldiers, they cut his head off, and having fried his brains, ate them. Two poor old women of St. Giovanni were burnt alive 
and a widow of Latour with her daughter were driven into the river and there stoned to death. Cipriania, Bustia, being asked if he would renounce his religion and turn Roman Catholic, replied, I would rather renounce life or turn dog. To which a priest answered, For that expression, you shall both renounce life and be given to the dogs. They accordingly dragged him to prison, where he considered, continued a considerable time without food until he was famished, after which they threw his corpse into the street before the prison, and it was devoured by dogs in the most shocking manner. Anthony, the son of Samuel, Cateris, a poor dumb lad who was extremely inoffensive, was cut to pieces by a party of the troops, and soon after the same ruffians entered the house of Peter Moniriat, and cut off the legs of the whole family, leaving them to bleed to death, as they were unable to assist themselves or to help each other. Daniel Benek, being apprehended, had his nose slit, his ears cut off, and then divided into quarters, each quarter being hung upon a tree. And Mary Manino had her jawbones broke and was then left to anguish till she was famished. Mary Palancian, a handsome widow belonging to the town of Valerio, was seized by a party of the Irish brigades who, having beat her cruelly and ravished her, dragged her to a high bridge which crossed the river and stripped her naked in a most indecent manner, hung her by the legs to the bridge with her head downwards toward the water, and then going into boats, they fired at her until she expired. Mary Negrino and her daughter, who was an idiot, were cut to pieces in the woods and their bodies left to be devoured by wild beasts. Susanna Bales, a widow of Valerio, was immured until she perished through hunger. Susanna Calvio, running away from some soldiers and hiding herself in a barn, they set fire to the straw and burnt her. Paul Armand was hacked to pieces. A child named Daniel Pertino was burnt. Daniel Michelino had his tongue plucked out and was left to perish in that condition. And Andrew Bertino, a very old man who was lame, was mangled in a most shocking manner and at length had his belly ripped open and his bowels carried about on the point of a halbert. Constantia Bellioni, a Protestant lady, being apprehended on account of her faith, was asked by a priest if she would renounce the devil and go to Mass. To which she replied, I was brought up in a religion by which I was always taught to renounce the devil. But should I comply with your desire and go to Mass, I should be sure to meet him there in a variety of shapes. The priest was highly incensed at what she said, and told her to recant, or she would suffer cruelly. The lady, however, boldly answered that she valued not any sufferings he could inflict, and in spite of all the torments he could invent, she would keep her conscience pure and her faith inviolate. The priest then ordered slices of her flesh to be cut off from several parts of her body, which cruelty she bore with the most singular patience, 
only saying to the priest, What horrid and lasting torments will you suffer in hell for the trifling and temporary pains which I now endure? Exasperated at this expression and willing to stop her tongue, the priest ordered a file of musketeers to draw up and fire upon her, by which she was soon dispatched and sealed her martyrdom with her blood. And so are a couple of examples from Fox's Book of Martyrs. I suggest that you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, and the Lord willing, by next Sunday, I'll have every family a copy. If you haven't read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you're very ignorant of Christianity and the world. Because for 1260 years, what the world called the Dark Ages until very recently, people like that perished at the hands of the Roman Catholic Church. And Romans chapter 8 has a list of seven things here which you've really never experienced. What do you call persecution for Jesus Christ? Somebody making fun of you for praying over your lunch at work? When was the last time you experienced famine? Famine induced by men. Because look at what the verse says. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Famine is not a who. Nakedness is not a who. Peril is not a who. These are man-made torments and tortures for the people of God. It's why we read Hebrews chapter 11 last week, if you read that little section. Remember what it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 35? Women received their dead raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. They would not recant their faith in Jesus Christ and the truth of the Bible, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Fox's Book of Martyrs just takes a prophecy that occurred before the New Testament and applies and shows that it kept right on happening with pagan Rome, papal Rome, and the persecuting forces of Europe called the Dark Ages in which Christians were punished in the way I just described, and I only read you maybe two dozen, seven in one account. And there were millions of them. When we look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, the tribulation, the distress, the persecution, the famine, the nakedness, the peril, and the sword are man-made torments that men have brought against the saints of Jesus Christ. Can they separate us from love of Christ? Can they, with all the evil that they can mount against a Christian, separate them from the love of Christ? No. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. And when you have someone having the flesh cut off their body, and they refuse to recant, and when they're praising God, and thanking God for being able to get to heaven sooner than they otherwise would have, you have someone that is more than conqueror over those things that are applied against them. Brethren, we live in a very sissified, effeminate generation of Christians. You don't know what these seven words mean, so we have to look into the lives of others to really grasp it. Some of, some of you have a taste. Some of you have had a taste. We have a visitor that's had a taste. But brethren... 
God has not called us to give our bodies. God has called us to give a living sacrifice. He's called us to give up the lust of our flesh and the desires of our minds in order to follow him more perfectly. Can we be compared to this illustrious company that's described in Hebrews chapter 11, that's implied here in Romans chapter 8? The Apostle Paul could write a verse like Romans 8.35 like no other man because he suffered persecutions and afflictions and tribulations, distress and peril. And so he could speak of these things like no other. Can we compare ourselves to this illustrious crowd by giving up those temptations of our flesh that the world and the devil now throw at us? We are not called to deny or defy the Mass, except it be Christ's Mass. Then we do so, and we do so gladly. They would have as well. We are asked to give up those little toys and bubbles that take us away from the Lord Jesus Christ and to live our lives holy for him. Are you worthy of really being called a Christian? Is there enough evidence that if you were put on trial for being a Christian, they could condemn you? If they could condemn you for something terrible for being a Christian, you can know, based on Romans chapter 8, that it cannot separate you from the love of Christ and that Christ died, lives again, sits at God's right hand, and intercedes for you, and nothing can be laid to your charge. May the Lord bless us to be faithful in the year 2008 in a totally different set of circumstances and live for him who gave his son for us. May Jesus Christ be praised.